Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. And joining me is the man who claims to know all the lyrics to Pearl Jam's Yellow Lead Better. And when he sings them, the lyrics are completely 100% entirely accurate. Here is my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Uh, hola, Ben. I mean. And also joining us is a former professional baseball pitcher who played 16 years in the bigs. He was an all-star in 2006, won a gold glove in 2010, and won a World Series ring with the Red Sox as a member of the curse-breaking team. But he's also a musician. He released a record in 2005 called Covering the Basis. Please welcome to the podcast, Bronson Arroyo. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. We're excited to be visiting with you. We'll get to talk about you know, what you're doing and, and a little bit of your career as well. We'll get to that in a moment. However, the premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast, we ask the all-important question. So, Wayne, what T-shirt are you wearing? I'm wearing my Pearl Jam Rearview Mirror shirt. Fantastic. Bronson, how about you? What T-shirt are you wearing? Well, I've got a Pearl Jam shirt on as well. I, I'm not sure what the name of it is. I call it the, the, the Do the Evolution shirt, where you got half monkey, half human, with the Pearl Jam logo underneath it. Very nice. I am also wearing a Pearl Jam shirt. I am wearing the Jeremy shirt, the one with the little kid uh, looking at a gun and the back of it saying, uh, you know, nine out of 10 kids prefer crayons to guns. So, <laughs> and if you couldn't figure out, if you couldn't figure out what we're going to talk about on this episode, we're talking about Pearl Jam. Before we dive into revisiting Pearl Jam, let's let's chat some baseball. You know, we've we've only talked baseball one other time on the podcast, and that was when Edgar Martinez got voted into the Hall of Fame. I know you predominantly pitched in the National League, but did you ever face Edgar? Oh yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a great Edgar story. Actually, I, I didn't face him that night, but um, we were playing in Seattle, 2005, I believe. I started the game. Um, I wind up punching out 11 guys. In a, I had 11 outs in a row that were strikeouts. So there was a couple of hits in between, but 11 outs in a row were strikeouts where they weren't 11 strikeouts in a row. But I was having a great game. I think I came out after seven innings. It was early in the season. It was probably May. I was rolling. And I remember I was having a conversation with Schilling in, uh, inside the clubhouse. And uh, the, the game was like four to one. We seemed like we had it under command. And um, we put in our closer, Keith Folk at the time. And, you know, things started brewing in the ninth inning and they were getting close to tying the game and it was bases loaded. They were still down by two. And Edgar Martinez hit a gapper coming off the bench to pinch hit. And uh, and I wind up getting the no decision. And, uh, you know, those are just so gut wrenching um, that I remember I walked from the stadium all the way back to the team hotel and I stopped in every bar to try to have one beer. And, and I kept running into all these uh, Red Sox fans on the way that were just super rowdy and, and, and wanting to hang out. But I was just bummed out by, by the uh, getting the no decision. Edgar was really good at helping pitchers get no decisions back. In Absolutely. The day. Yeah. Well, I will say this. I, I The Red Sox, what a, that team travels well. I mean, they got – I went to a game last season – early in the season. And I bet, I bet it was at least 50, 50. I mean, when the Red Sox did something, the cheers were just as loud as when the, when the Mariners did something. 
yeah, that's what that's what made it so exciting to to play for that team because you'd go on the road and you'd be like, man, we are thousands of miles from home up in Seattle or in San Francisco. And when you'd come out of the dugout to just go down to start stretching and warm up, you'd hear a little bit of a roar in the crowd like you were playing. You know, for most teams, it would be like if you were playing at home. And uh, it always just gave you an incentive to bring your A game every night because you knew you were playing under the scrutiny of, you know, maybe ten to 15,000 Red Sox fans inside of these visiting ballparks. And that's just uh... – that's just Seattle we're talking about. So I live, I live in Florida now. So I go to Tampa Bay Rays games, and I would swear eighty five percent of the uh, of the fan base there for Red Sox and Yankees games are definitely the opposing team. Absolutely, yeah. It was the same way when I was there. It was, uh, you know, I I, th- I only got tossed out of one game I think ever in my big league career, and. Uh, I just I had to hit a couple of guys one night in Tampa because it was kind of this retaliation thing going on. And I wound up drilling a couple of guys and getting kicked out of the game. And I think in the bottom, uh, I think it was the bottom of the sixth. And um, but I got a standing ovation and I felt like you were playing at home because it was so many Red Sox fans in the house. (laughs) That is hilarious. Do you remember who you plunked? Yeah, it was uh, um, Chris Singleton was the the, the second one. (laughs) And uh I just remember it was it was a situation where Schilling was supposed to have gotten Carl Crawford earlier in the game uh, the day before, and he didn't get an opportunity to do it. And so we already had some beef going on, and then they wind up throwing at Millar again the next day, and then and then Manny went deep, and the next pitch was at David Ortiz's face, and so it was like I just had to hit a second guy, and I got kicked out of the game. But we got we got the win on that one. So I, I listed a few of your accomplishments in your intro. So. What are the what are the things that you're most proud of in your career? I think um, probably probably just staying healthy as long as I did and eating up as many innings was probably the number one thing. You know, I didn't have a I didn't have a huge ego for you know I, I felt like the, the the game your seasons would play out and you would have decent numbers on the back of your baseball card at the end of a year if you could if you could pony it up, pitch 200 innings, and tow the rubber 32 to you know to 34 times whenever they gave you the ball. And so I went from the rookie league in 1995 basically until I was 37 years old with the Diamondbacks without missing a start. I pitched, you know, some time in the bullpen in the playoffs and some time in the bullpen with the Pirates early on when I was young. But I, I threw over 450-something times as a starter in the minor leagues, and 369 of those were in the big leagues in a row without getting hurt. And um, that was what I was most proud of. Obviously, winning the World Series in 2004 was fantastic. Um, but, you know, I was a young guy at the time. And I, I mean, by today's standards, I would have been a veteran, like 27 years old and having three or four years in the big leagues. But at the time, that was a really veteran team. Guys like Johnny Damon, you know, David Ortiz, Kevin Millar, Schilling, you know, Derek Lowe, Tim Wakefield. These guys were grown men, you know, Jason Baratek. And they, they were 32, 33 years old. And I felt like a young kid in that locker room. And so, you know, I was I felt like I was just kind of on their coattails a little bit, even though I contributed a whole lot. Um, it was a little bit more satisfying to be in Cincinnati and to get to the playoffs in 2010 and 12 with Dusty Baker, I think, on a personal level. Yeah, because you guys had to do that without all the veterans. Uh, yeah, it was it was a young team that was kind of homegrown. You know, the guys like Joey Votto, Jay Bruce, Johnny Cueto, Mike Leake, Homer Bailey, they had all come through that farm system. And so I got the opportunity to come over uh, to Cincinnati in 2006 and kind of really be a frontline guy with Aaron Harang holding down that rotation until the team got better, where we finally made the playoffs three out of four years there. And we didn't we didn't get over the hump. We never got a, a chance to win a um, a playoff series. But those are some fun years for me. And I also got a, an opportunity to be an all-star and to win a gold glove in 2010. And um, I think I think I'm the only pitcher in the Reds history that 
that's ever won a gold glove. I think that's true. So um, that was, that was pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. I, I told a few of my friends, I'm like, Hey, I got Bronson Arroyo coming on an episode. Any questions that you want to ask? And one of my friends is a, is a Boston guy. So he's like, so I'm curious if the A-Rod and Veritech fight and with Arroyo plunking him first, is there still animosity between you and A-Rod? Well, there, there isn't any on my end, but um, a, f- a funny, co- funny coincidence. Um, when that first happened, you know, uh, Jason Veritech and, and Alex had to play on the, on the same world baseball classic team oh, that yeah. very next year. Yeah. And so that was really awkward. And I remember asking, um, Veritech, you know, how was it? And he said, he said, man, one game, he said, I was taping up my wrist just before the game and no one else was in the training room. And here comes Alex taping up his wrist too. And we both just stood there taping up our wrist and never said a word to each other. <laughs> but, but, for, um, you know, just this past year, I was doing an interview with a guy who was writing a book. Um, he was come from CNN in Europe and he was doing a book on athletes who play music. And somehow a couple of months later, he texted me and said, Hey, I'm doing an interview with Alex Rodriguez today. Do you want me to ask him anything? You know, and I didn't know what to say. So I just, I text the guy and I said, uh, I said, just ask him if he remembers hitting a home run in extra innings at my high school in 1993 and beating us um, in the ninth inning. I was just, you know, tossing him something to make a little small talk. And sure. uh, he, te- he texted me back a, l- a few hours later and he said, yeah, I brought your name up. He said, wasn't real pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I thought, wow, in, 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 you know, this guy seemingly has everything on the planet and he still like has beef with me for, 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 for trying to charge the mount on me and slapping the ball out of my glove in the playoffs. Both, both were, um, dirty plays on, on his part. And, um, but I guess for whatever reason, you know, he's got beef with me. Well, yeah. And, and I wish that Alex would just actually retire because, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have had an opportunity to listen to him on the ESPN broadcast, but he's awful. So. I've heard, I've heard, I've heard a little bit of it, you know, and I, I, I honestly, I don't know him at all. I just, I just know when he came into our high school in 1993, he was, you know, he was a big, strong kid. He was pretty much a grown man at that point. And, and, um, you know, he was obviously pretty cocky and he, he seemed to play his career that way, but, but I don't know him on a personal level at all. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's just that Wayne and I are both bitter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never, I was hoping he would never win a championship. I, I just was like say I knew when he went to the Yankees that he probably would, but I I just I never wanted him to succeed. And it wasn't even the leaving Seattle the thing. It was when it became a, a, a steroid issue that I, I just have I got a big problem with cheaters, and I didn't I didn't I just wanted him to never win a ring ever. Right, right. Well, the other thing too was that was a little disheartening. Was you already had the first allegation back in the Texas days, and that all kind of came out with the whatever it was, the Mitchell report or the the anonymous test from O three, and all that was fine and dandy. But then, then there was a whole second round of it, and then you know trying to take the league to court and all this weird stuff when they had him just dead to rights. It was kind of like you know just own your stuff, man, and, and take your suspension and go play. So are you are you still involved in baseball in some kind of capacity? Not on an official capacity. You know, I was down at the ballpark yesterday here in Cincinnati. And, um, you know, I'm still pretty close with that team because I was there for nine years and I, I retired in that uniform. And it's probably a good chance I'll be in their Hall of Fame in the next couple of years. So it, it's a really young ball club. So I've had the opportunity to still be connected. So I go down there and I, I clean spikes sometimes and I pass out laundry and I eat a bunch of food and I <laughs> just chew the fat chew the fat with the guys. And so, sometimes there's a couple of pitchers, you know, that might want to talk about a breaking ball or something that was – but bugging them. Um, 
but it's just nice to feel like you got a place that to call home because Boston was fantastic, but I was only there for, for three seasons. So it wasn't quite, and it, you know, it felt a, a more like home in Cincinnati because I was there for nine years, but also, like I said, getting an opportunity to kind of raise some of those young guys in that team. There's no way, there's no way that you have to, you have to pay for your own drinks in Boston though. I'm, I'm sure of that. Not most of the time. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, you'd be, you'd be surprised, man. It's like FaceTime. Um, just FaceTime on the TV matters so much. You know, I still, to this day, I still get a lot more people because it was more current and I was here longer. I get people in Cincinnati who just, you know, they recognize me a lot more than Boston. If, if you're, you know, an old Red Sox fan, you, people will get me, but nothing like it used to be. It used to be so rabid there that you couldn't even walk down the street. So, so not coaching at all. Is it because the Reds don't want you teaching their prospects that long leg kick of yours? <laughs> they probably don't want that, but uh, no, it's, you know, they've asked me to coach if I wanted to, they asked me to do TV. They asked me to do radio. You know, I've had MLB network and ESPN kind of, t- toss ideas at me, but I just honestly, you know, I've been thinking about this game for a long time and I, 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 I grew up a little different than most, you know, most guys who play a sport at this type of a level, they usually don't get that serious about it. So maybe 16 or 17. And, um, I had a father who had me in the weight room at five and six years old yeah. and we were lifting incredible amounts of weight. And so, um, you know, the day to day grind of staying focused on your body and, and how you're going to perform with that thing from basically from the age of five until I was 40, you know, I just I feel like what what the game has to offer me these days is very time consuming. And I'm just I'm just not really willing at this time to to, to step into that realm, because even if you're doing TV, you know, you have you've got to be you've got to be buttoned up. You've got to be you got to know what's going on. You've got to study the charts. You've got to You know, there's a lot of statistics in the game now. And, um, you know, I don't want to go over there and, and just kind of do a half a half ass job. Yeah. So uh, what can people expect from the red? So I, I will tell you this. I live in Orlando, so I go to a number of Daytona Tortugas uh, games during the year. That's uh, that's Try. now high A for the Reds. So we've 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 Try. seen a few uh, few good prospects. I'm I'm really high on Taylor Trammell. I think he's going to be a stud. And I was a big fan of Shed Long, which the Mariners got in a trade. So what 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 can people expect from the Reds in the next couple of years cuz they are definitely in rebuilding mode but you know what else what else can we expect besides you know Puig getting in fights with Chris Archer <laughs> well you know they've definitely been in rebuilding mode for the last couple of years but mostly just uh, not with the defense and the offense but on the pitching staff side you know they've been they've just been lacking in quality starts they haven't had guys who can go out there every fifth day and just get into the seventh inning and so they finally went out and they signed Tanner Rourke they signed Sonny Gray or they traded for him. And um, they also got Alex Wood in the trade from the Dodgers for Homer Bailey. So they've solidified the rotation. They've got five guys now who are pitching lights out. I mean, right now I think they've got to have top four ERAs in baseball across the board, but um, they, they haven't hit early on. They finally just swept the Marlins. So, you know, I think they're going to have a better season than they've had in the last five years for sure. I think there's got, they got a chance to play over 500 this year. You know, that being said, that division is going to be really tough. The Cardinals with Paul Goldschmidt at first base yeah. is going to be – that's going to be a monster. And, you know, Milwaukee's good. The Pirates are always tough. And, and uh, you know, the Cubs are struggling right now too, but they've obviously got the potential to turn it on. So, um, you know, I, I think the best – most of the best players you have in the Reds uh, organization – unless they're, they're lower level prospects, like you're talking about like a high A or like a Hunter Green, who's just having Tommy John surgery, those guys are there, but they don't have, they don't have too, too much more in, in double A AA or triple A other than guys who we've already seen at the big leagues over the last couple of years, like an Amir Garrett or a Sal Romano, um, guys who haven't quite 
totally gotten it done, um, but they might find a role in the bullpen. So, you know, I, I expect a couple of good years here from the Reds on, on this this crew they've got going now. But to get over the hump and do what we did for three years there um, from 2010 to 13, I don't I don't know that division is going to be really hard to, to surmount. So so let's uh, let's switch gears and talk about music. So where where did the music thing come from? I mean, you, you just talked about how, you know, your dad had you in the weight rooms at an early age. So. When, when did you kind of figure music was kind of your, your second thing? Well, it was, it was around my house a lot. Um, you know, my father sang in bands in high school and he was always singing in the car and playing the piano and the drums around the house. And everybody in my family played something. My grandmother was a music teacher in Key West for 70 years. So, you know, when I was in that house, there would be people from, you know, age five all the way up to 65 coming in to learn the cello, the violin, the piano. And so there was music always around and we were always listening to music in the weight room when I was a kid. But we were listening to the Mamas and the Papas, the Beatles, you know, Credence and, uh, you know, Billy Joel and all the oldies. And for whatever reason, I, I enjoyed the music, but it didn't give me goosebumps. It didn't really turn me on. And so I was 22. I was in double A with the Pirates in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And somebody gave me an acoustic guitar. And by that time, I had already gotten the bug from listening to everything that came out of Seattle, which, you know, once, once, uh, I heard, I heard creep by STP and then that, you know, went to plush and that went to Nirvana and then to Pearl Jam and the Soundgarden. And once that thing turned, by the time I got the double A and somebody handed me acoustic guitar, I was getting the itch to, to try to learn to play music. And so that's where it really started just in a hotel room, seeing if I could play songs that I love to listen to on the radio. So were you the guy on the back of the, at the back of the bus playing the guitar like Nuke Lelouch? Yeah, actually it was, it was, except back then I had this little Fender Squire and I didn't have an acoustic guitar. Um, I know I, I had an acoustic, but for some reason I would take this electric on the road. Now that I think about it, I, cause I had the original guitar that was given to me by the, by the assistant GM of the, of that team was an acoustic, but I had this electric I would take on the road and had this little box. And I remember it was running off a nine volt battery and it was always, it sounded terrible. And I, I when I, when now when I talk with some of the guys that were on that team, they were like, Bronson, you were such a good guy and everyone loved you so much is the only reason we let you play that damn guitar, man. Cause it sounded so bad. If anybody else would have done that, we would have smashed it over their head. <laughs> T- tell me that unlike nuke, you at least knew that women get weary and not wooly. <laughs> I did. I definitely knew that, okay. but I'm sure I messed a couple of lyrics up here and there. <laughs> that was really the, 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 the start of, of, music appreciation is by Seattle music then. Yeah, there was something in the, it was something in the the darker lyrics and it just, it just felt, you know, it rang more true to me for some reason, you know, my life had, had been very optimistic and always was. And I didn't, I didn't know why it resonated with me so much, even to this day, but a lot, a lot of the, you know, the stuff from, from that time just felt like it was coming from a, a, a non cheery place. It just felt like it was coming from something that was more real than what I was used to listening to on the radio as a kid. And so, um, I just gravitated towards that. And then for whatever reason, my, when I started singing with the, along with the guitar, cause I just assumed, you know, no one else was going to sing, I guess I better do it. And, um, my, my voice was kind of gravelly and it was a lot like, um, the guys from that, from that, uh, era there. So it, it was just kind of a perfect match. And, and I was kind of off to the races. I, once I picked up the guitar, I couldn't put it down. It was something that was with me every day on the road, no matter where we were playing. And, uh, you know, there'd be days maybe when you were pitching when you wouldn't touch it, but most days I was picking it up almost every time, every day. And, and you recruited a few of your teammates to like form little bands and whatnot. Was it, did they gravitate to you because you had the electric guitar or did you have to actively recruit people and say, 
you kind of look like a bass player. Maybe, maybe you should pick up a bass, you know? <laughs> no, it was in the, in the early days in the minor leagues, nobody, nobody would really play with me. Um, I was just kind of hacking through it and it was, you know, it was hard to even sometimes just put a whole song together. But by the time I got to the big leagues, it was starting to get a, a little bit better and a little bit better. And by the time I got to the Red Sox in 03, some of those guys were interested. Tim Wakefield had played a little bit. And it got to where I, w- I could play a lot of songs, a lot of cover songs. And guys like Malar would call me at two o'clock in the morning in the hotel room and have a little shindig going and be like, hey, we need some live music. So I wind up being the guy going down there. And then, um, you know, then in the later years in Cincinnati and in Arizona, guys really gravitated towards me because then they had heard a reputation of, of you know, being able to play shows and, and playing music on a level that the average ball player or the average athlete wouldn't be able to do. So then when I got to Arizona, we had a real nice band there. We had, um, cause Kurt Gibson was my manager and he loved music. So he got Fender to send us over all the equipment we needed. And we had this back storage room and every day before the game we'd play. And I, I had, uh, we had Wade Miley on bass, um, who played a little bit of guitar, but, um, Aaron Hill played guitar, Mark Trumbo played guitar and um, and then whoever was around who wanted to think they were going to drum, we had a couple of guys in the bullpen that could drum a little bit because they had played in church as kids. But but most of the time we were playing without a drummer, and it, it was just uh, us just playing cover songs. I'd tell the guys the chords, and we'd just see if we could get through them. Nice. And you put to, you put together your own record as well. Was was that also former ball players, or did you actually have you know legit musicians on uh, on that? Yeah that that was real that was real musicians that was um. We win the World Series in 04, and I get a call from my agent, and he says, hey, there's a guy who wants to make a record with you who did a record with Bernie Williams a year before, and I think he got a Grammy nomination. And so I said, man, I just don't know if I have time. And so I talked to the guy, and he said, um, he said, why don't you just pick your tw- you know, 12 of your favorite songs that you'd like to sing, and I'm going to bring in a band that you're not even going to believe how good these guys are. He said, just Google them. And I didn't, I didn't know who any of these guys were at the time, but he he brings me Kenny Aaron off okay. playing the drums. <laughs> he brings he, he brings me Kenny Aronoff. He brings me Lee Sklar on the bass, right? I mean, you're sitting there watching him play on the Muppets and, and play play with um, James Taylor all through the 70s. And you're like, Jesus, I'm going to have to sit in the studio with these guys. And and, uh, and then he brought a guy named Michael Landau to play guitar. And um, those three guys and then Mike Inez from Allison Chain showed up and played three songs on the bass. And, um, you know, I was in awe of these guys. We're in the studio and they're, and we're just tracking this stuff live. And they're just such fantastic musicians. I'm in this little booth, you know, and, and it was funny though, when I first got there, they really had never hear, heard me sing at all. So I remember looking through the glass window and they said, all right, we're going to start with plush. And so, so they, they start playing the music and I could see all the guys looking through the window. Just, I start singing and we get about a verse and a chorus in, and then I could see them like kind of relieved. you like, well, I, th- I think he's going to be able to pull it off. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was good, but what an experience, man. I'm still friends with those guys to this day. Nice. The, the names you just listed, that sounds like Linda Ronstadt's backing band. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. We'd go to like Warner Brothers or somewhere just to kind of pitch the record to see if they wanted to distribute it. And, and they'd look on the back of the record and go, how in the world did you get these guys to play for you? But it was just that the, the producer, Lauren Harriet, had been you know with these guys on many other projects in the years in the past. And he just said, hey, we're going to have this fun project. If you guys want to be a part of it, let's, let's, uh, let's do it. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's a highlight right there. You're still doing music now so you're i saw on your uh facebook page that you've got a couple tour dates coming up so what what comprises your set list these days you know mostly it's i've got kind of two things going on at the same time i'm writing original music for the very first time um with guys that i met in boston in 03 
and um, I've been friends with them ever since. Really have a good time. We don't, we've always played the hot stove cool musics for Peter Gammons and Theo Epstein in the oh, wintertime yeah. in Boston to raise some money for um, Theo's uh, foundation to be named later. And um, so those guys, I'm writing original music with them, and I've got, I'm getting close to 20 songs over the last year, and I'm, I'm going to eventually probably do that, and I have no idea where that will go. It, it doesn't really matter. I just – you know, I just want to be able to put an LP on a record player and put it down and say, I made that, you know, and if you, that's really the, the goal. But with the band here in Cincinnati, um, we, we play all cover songs. So um, the set list is comprised of about we probably have 45 songs now in our list. And in uh, most nights, if we're playing, it's probably about 25 songs, so about half of them. And there's a lot of Pearl Jam in there. There's Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, R.E.M., uh, Oasis. Just basically anything that I just really love listening to and that I want to take a shot at singing. We've got some Nirvana in there now. We've got a little bit of U2. It's just a real um, mix of a lot a lot of hits, really. And, um, you know, we just have fun. The, guy, the guys are, are good musicians who all have regular jobs, and they just like to get out in front of a crowd a little bit. And, and because of my name in this area and in New England, I get we get the ability to either play charity shows, which helps out the charity, bringing a few more people into the house, or sometimes just go out and just play a regular old rock club, you know, for a few thousand bucks and, and uh, just make a night of it, man. It's just, it's really exhilarating to get on stage and to be able to rip for two hours and, and do something that get your blood pumping and get your adrenaline going in the same way that it would have when I was standing on the mound. And that's, that's hard to do for guys when they retire from playing sports. Yeah. that's cool. All right. So last question before we jump into uh, 10, so uh, Wayne, Wayne's going to cringe when I ask this question. So Toto's Africa, good song or bad song? <laughs> I think it's fantastic. There we go. All right. Two All right. two guests in a row, Wayne. Me against the world. That's fine. That, hey, like hey, everybody's got their everybody's got their pet peeves, man. My, I, got, I got some buddies that, you know, anything I toss at them, they think is terrible unless it's like, you know, the Thriller album. I'm like, bro, I mean, we can't compete with Michael Jackson here. It's like. You know, if I if if I say, "Hey, let's play a uh, a Creed song," you know, they look at me like I'm out of my mind. But uh, <laughs> but anything to me that you want to sing along with that makes you feel something, you know, Toto Africa, man, when that thing comes on, that is an absolute classic for a vibe, you know. Absolutely. All right. So let's let let's jump into ten. So uh, Bronson, I gave you the choice to revisit a record that inspired you, or uh, I also gave you a list of the records that we were contemplating, and you were you were all about wanting to revisit Pearl Jam's Ten. So why is this an important record to you? I mean, you you kind of touched on getting introduced to STP, and then that led you to Pearl Jam, and it still resonates to this day. Yeah, it's been it's been a, it's been probably one of few threads uh, throughout my you know from the time. I graduated high school all the way, you know, because you're riding on buses a lot in the minor leagues. You've got a lot of alone time playing baseball, <clears throat> a lot of downtime, <clears throat> especially in those years when you're on, you know, you're trekking 13, 14 hours across the country. And so you start listening to music a lot. And back then I was listening to uh, Crack Review by um, Hootie and the Blowfish and August and everything afterwards, Counting Crows and also the 10 record. And, you know, I just... I just loved the energy in it. And then when you start really diving into the, to the messages and the stories, you know, I, I thought Eddie was just a very, very special guy based off of that. And, and, and then becoming friends with him over the last, you know, decade um, just kind of reaffirmed that. But even, even if that had never happened, I also was listening to that 
record every day that I worked out in the weight room. It was, you know, as years went on, <clears throat> it was really hard to get, you know, to get the body going. Sometimes you're 37 years old, you got to go in and pound a squat workout. You pitched 111 pitches the night before in San Francisco, and you're going to fly later that day and be dehydrated and stuff. And so the one thing that I could always consistently depend on, which was, I knew that if I blasted, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> if I played release while I was warming up on the bike and then, and then once hit, that I was going to be able to turn it on, you know, like I was going to get through this workout. And so I, you know, when for the last 15 years of my career, guys would walk by the weight room. If they heard that record, they knew I was in there lifting. And sometimes guys would be like, man, why are you listening to that so much? But it was, it's one of the few records that has so much energy in it that I felt like I could run through a brick wall all the time. So I would use it. I definitely use, I think in my, uh, my set list for working out rear view mirror is, uh, is on there. Yeah. I think corduroy is also on that. Yeah. Uh, both got a lot of angst in the lyrics and in the, and in the, in the, in the music. Absolutely. Gets, gets me going. All right. So, uh, let's, let's jump into this. So let's get, uh, let's get a little bio info information. Uh, so we're going to listen to this record. We'll rank the songs off the album. Each ranking is assigned points based on the number of songs on the album. Today's album 11 songs therefore wayne how many 11 okay you're not even gonna let me finish <laughs> the sentence all right so let's let's get some bio info here is um release date august 27th 1991 was released through epic records uh we've talked about mother love bone before on other episodes heart of this band really comes from uh the bassist jeff ament and guitarist stone gossard the two recruited Eddie Vedder. We'll talk about how that recruiting process happened. Uh, they also recruited guitarist Mike McCready and Dave Cruson on drums, though they've gone through a lot of drummers over the over the decades. I think they've got a good one in Matt Cameron. Or unluckily for uh, for Matt, he only has one gig right now. So uh, rest in peace, uh, Chris Cornell. So that's right. Um, so 10 has sold more than 13 million copies in the U.S. It is regarded as one of the greatest albums to have ever been made. And we've talked about Rolling Stone list before on the podcast. So I wanted to talk about debut records since this was this was Pearl Jam's debut. Rolling Stone ranked 10 as the 46th best debut record, which I'm calling ridiculous. B I'm calling BS on on this the, on this list now, Wayne. You know what's number one on the debut list, right? Uh, yeah. Well, we've discussed it, but I've drawn a complete blank. The Beastie Boys license. The Beastie Bill. Boys, yes. So let's. <laughs> I want your guys' opinion because I, I I I looked at this a couple of days ago and I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. All right, so so, <laughs> so Pearl Jam's number forty six, number forty five is Psycho Candy by Jesus and Mary Chain. Wow. That's that, that that's as bad as Billy Corgan saying on Howard Stern that uh that he didn't think Pearl Jam had enough songs to to, to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, whatever, Billy. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, forty four was Black Sabbath's debut record from nineteen seventy. Yeah, I yeah, it's still no. Okay. I, I just I don't understand how it's not in the top ten, if not even the top five, I know. as far as debut records go. I just I'm I'm baffled by that whole. Who's making these lists? I don't know. So 43, Jeff Buckley's Grace. Good, good record, but no. Better than Pearl Jam's 10? Come on now. 
Uh, 42 is Oasis's Definitely Maybe. Good record, not better than 10. And this is the one that I think is going to cause you guys to lose your crap. So Boston's debut record from 1976 at number 41. Wow. Somebody must have had it out for for uh, for Pearl Jam on this list, man. That is crazy, man. I mean, when you listen to this whole album, the, the intricacies just musically, man, of just how much is going on with the guitars, man, in comparison to some of those other records is not even in the same yeah, league. Did Eddie not grant somebody there at Rolling Stone an interview or something? What? Maybe, maybe, maybe they're still mad that he's got got that lyric in uh, in the song in the song "Blood." <laughs> he says, "Paint big, paint uh, Ed big, and turned you into one of his enemies." I guess he was pissed they put him on the on the cover by himself or something, right? Or was that Time? That was Time Magazine. Oh, that's right. He was on maybe the time. that. Was, yeah. 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 All right, so uh, before we jump into this, so I found this quote from Wikipedia Musing. It says, while Pearl Jam was accused of jumping on the grunge bandwagon at the time, despite the fact that 10 had been recorded and released before Nirvana's Nevermind, 10 was instrumental in popularizing alternative rock in the mainstream. When did Pearl Jam, when were they ever accused of jumping on the grunge bandwagon? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, they were definitely out front, and even though they weren't as, it took a little bit for it to catch on, but they it was out there already. And I mean, if you're two guys right. from Mother Love Bone, that's that Mother Love Bone put the wheels on that that thing. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. Yeah, not to mention that you know, Ed Ed sang you know three or four of those songs after he went surfing on just on a tape. I mean, he wasn't even in that scene at all. You know, he's down in San Diego just hanging out and just kind of ad lib in these songs quickly and just pop the right, tape in the mail. Right. Just, uh, just an asinine comment, but all right. Uh, so during the conversation, I'm going to talk about a few of the B sides and outtakes. Uh, I did want to start out with the song brother, because that was recorded during the process. The talk about the early band was that the song was considered, considered to be on the record, but stone didn't want to play the song anymore and Jeff almost quit the band over this. It, it, is brother would brother have fit on this record, and where would it have stacked up if brother actually would have made it on the record? I don't know. For for me, I don't I don't think it uh, I don't think it, it should have made the record. I, you know the only the only song from back in that time that I was surprised didn't make the record was State of Love yes. and Trust. And we talked about that ad nauseum on our uh, singles soundtrack episode yeah and the the version the version that they had at that point wasn't the same one that ended up on the single soundtrack but yeah it's i mean this is one of those butterfly effect things i mean i can't imagine touching this record brother i listened to it um i haven't listened to it recently but it didn't blow my you know it didn't blow my doors off or anything but this is one of those records that i mean at one point i would have i mean if i was stranded on a desert island and could only have 10 cds with me this one has to be in there so I just can't imagine changing it or putting anything else on it. Yeah. And most of the B-sides and outtakes that I'm going to talk about, uh, if you guys are really interested in not sure what we're talking about, you can go to Pearl Jam's Lost Dogs. Most of the most of those tracks are going to be found there. So, all right. Well, let's jump into it. So first, first track is Once. Got a bomb in my temple that is gonna explode. I got a 16 gate buried under my clothes. I'm playing. Once, oh, 
And I guess the opening part before it really jumps into the song, I guess they call that Master Slave. And you'll hear parts of that to uh, to finish out the record as well. Um, it's kind of one of those hidden tracks. Uh, and, and I don't know. Does it does it does it work? Con- considering that uh, we've listened to this record hundreds of times, probably um, it still kind of gets me ramped up for the for for the actual song. Yeah, for the beginning of once, I, I agree. I, I love I love it. I mean, it gets a little long on the on the backside of release, but but um, it creates you know kind of a mysterious mood and and you know in those early days you know with people not really understanding who eddie was and why he was coming from such a vicious place even just you know the way he was acting on stage and how he was so quiet in his personal life um you know i i'd, I'd love the, the the beginning of that and how it it just um you know it, it feels like something that should be playing before a show when the lights drop down just before the the, the show and starts i say this all the time on these kind of episodes you got to come out strong on the first song and this comes out strong, especially when Eddie kind of does his little rap, uh, rap sing song, you know, backstreet loving on the side of the road. I got a bot. Yeah. Um, so that, that really gets me going every time I, I, every time I hear this song. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, uh, this, the beginning, I'm, I'm not sold on the, in, uh, what I thought was an intro that I, I did later find out was part of that, the thing that kills release for me. But that, this song is always from the first time I heard it. Um, I just, uh, that he just, that growling madness, you know, this, and I, and I've later since found out more about the song. I never looked at the lyrics before they are dark and disturbed. And I oh, never yes. caught that. All I heard was, you know, 16 gauge under my clothes. And I just, then all of a sudden it goes into the chorus. And uh, I just, this song is, I, I love it. He, he is the highlight of this song for sure. How did you not know that this was a dark song? I mean, it's, it's once upon a well, time you know I what? could love myself. Well, you know what? Not everybody grew up in a sunshiny home like you, uh, Ben. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I just never, I didn't even put together backstreet lover with, prostitute it just didn't i didn't catch the 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 verse with the uh pass in the back street lover in the passenger seat you know with the gun in his pocket i mean he's taking her hostage i just i just it's one of those things where i never looked i just sang the song and those lyrics i knew i sang and the lyrics i didn't i didn't and uh, i just never (laughs) i just never put it all together until just this week well that that was one of the that was one of the three songs you know that was on the on that first tape that he sent back to the band. And so, you know, that if you heard him to ever tell that story, he told it once on stage, I think. And I asked him about it. It's, you know, in his mind, it was a trilogy, which was, you know, Mama um, alive. alive, alive was a true story. And then, and then it turned him into a serial killer, which is what he is in once and why he, you know, ended up in footsteps. But um, yeah, what a great, I mean, I love it. I got a bomb in my temple and it's going to explode. I absolutely love it. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get some scores on this. So, uh, Wayne, what you got? Uh, 10. There's no way it could have gotten my top spot because that song's personal. But this song, I, I, I absolutely love this song. And like I say, that line, Bomb in My Temple, I mean, it just it conveys madness. Just uh, the whole thing. Just brilliant. Yep. Bronson, how about your score? Yeah, I got a, I, I'm, I'm kind of right there, too. I gave it a nine. And I, I will say when, when you guys, when I read the email and it said some of these albums are hard to rank, 
man, I was struggling with this thing. I didn't think I was going to, but I, I did. I changed my scoring on this at least a half a dozen times. <laughs> uh, no, no joke. Uh, I also give it a 10. So I think we are, we're all in simpatico there. Uh, that this is this is a great song, great way to start your career, essentially. So, all right, moving on. Second song is Even Flow. This was the second single off the record. Uh, this was not released as a single until April of 92. This was many months after the first single, Alive, was released in August 91. So, Wayne, to your point about, you know, it it, it took a little bit of simmering before they really, really broke, broke out. Uh, the B-sides to this, Dirty Frank, and also a remix of Oceans. Um, I dig Dirty Frank, but I saw it more as a like a Red Hot Chili Pepper song than a Pearl Jam song. And one thing to note on Dirty Frank, so that was recorded after 10 came out. So it's not really considered a um, an outtake of 10 because that was recorded well after the record had already come out. Um, everybody knows this song, so some somebody give us some some analysis on this oh i mean the the hard part about this record and i think it's hard for the guys in the band sometimes is that you know the, the record was recorded a little slicker than than all the ones after it and and they were so commercial you know but the thing is you just can't i mean even flow even though you know it's, it was such a popular song it could probably could be played out a little bit but man the, the melody is just so fantastic um for me it's just it's just a it's just a hit right out of the gate yeah yeah, and I think this is some of the uh, on. The, I mean, I put a note in here because I think this is one of the songs where um, I don't know if there's a solo. I don't recall, but this is some of the best work that Stone and Mike McCready do together. Like their guitars kind of weave in and out uh, perfectly. And like I say, the the lyrics on this are phenomenal. I once again, I never just read them, and I heard the you know chases him away part, but I never heard the first line, the line before that about the the thoughts are you know thoughts like butterflies thoughts arrive like butterflies and then he right. chases them i was just the lyrics when you read them are just and and like i say to your point this guy was pumping gas and if he hadn't been surfing buddies with a guy who used to be in the red hot chili peppers this whole thing might not have happened exactly exactly you know and, and that song my, my favorite line in that song is he's pray, uh, praying up to something that's never shown him anything and um and we were, I was talking with Eddie, having that conversation. And I just said to him, you know, I said, you were already thinking along the atheist line, you know, or, you know, you're like 27 years old. It's kind of fascinating. And, uh, and so that, that night in Mexico city or the next night, he, in the middle of the song, it's on the recording, you hear it gets to that part. And he, just before he says that line, he says, Bronson, <laughs> and he says, pray and up to something that has never shown him anything. And then he stares up at the sky, he starts screaming. He starts, he goes, what, oh, man, he's <laughs> hilarious. How many times have you seen them live? 
you know, they never toured when I could see them until 2010. They finally started touring in the wintertime. And I think since 2010, I've probably seen about 15 yeah. shows. And and so I got to call you out on this. How can you be a fan or, or a friend of Eddie considering he's a Cubs fan? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. You know, it's funny that every time I would pitch against the Cubs, he always say, you know what? I'm rooting for the Cubs, Bronson, and I'm rooting for you. So whoever wins, I win. <laughs> <laughs> and so... But it was cool. Some it was cool to have a conversation with him about once in a while because I beat I beat the Cubs up pretty good a lot because they always had a right handed, a right um, a mostly right handed lineup with their power hitters and that played into my hand playing throwing a lot of breaking balls, and so I'd go you know I'd win three or four games sometimes in a season against those guys and he'd call me and we'd have a laugh about me beating up on the That's Cubbies. Awesome. All right, let's get some scores unless you guys have any additional analysis you want to do on even flow. Well, the only thing, other thing that I just found out last year, I think I was at a show in Seattle and it, it was the first show that they did um, last year, right? And, and, um, the one at he Safeco? told us, yeah, at Safeco. And he, t- he told a story about, uh, what he wrote the song about. I mean, you knew it was about homelessness, but he never really gave it an actual face. And he talked about a homeless guy that he had, um, run into he was always there at that place where they first started rehearsing in that first week and he started bringing him back a sandwich the same sandwich whatever he would buy he would bring it back for him and then when they came back off that first tour he found him living under a bridge and they and then when he came back the next time i think he had he had died or something but and he said his name was eddie and um it was just it was fascinating after all these years knowing it was about homelessness to to have him actually say oh no it was specifically about this one guy that 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 changes a little the little of the meaning there all right let's get some scores so bronson uh i had an eight on that okay wayne i gave it a six but like i say these are all this is a it's a great song yep and i give it a seven so we're uh right in there mid 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 pack uh do we give it a little bit lower score because of uh how popular the song was how many times we've heard it? No, and I had there was a time when when uh, I just didn't it I, I didn't connect to the song right away, uh, but because I think I was listening to the record or the C- CD, I wasn't listening to a record. But uh, by this time, like once because I had heard I I caught an interview with um, Eddie and I think Stone and Jeff on KISW, the local rock radio station out here. Prior to it getting, it was released, but it wasn't popular. And all I heard was the basis and, you know, Stone and, and Jeff Ament from uh, Mother Love Bone. And I was interested, you know, I, I wanted to find out what was going on. So I was listening when this came out. I just didn't really connect to the song because uh, I was listening to the whole CD. So it never got played out. But it, it, this is one of those songs that the more you listen to it and the more you, you know, like I say, look deeper into the lyrics. It's it's hard not to. And especially when you think this guy is. This kid is just starting. I mean, he had no real experience to this and and it just grew on me from there. Yeah. And this is that that's a super popular song as far as how many times they've played it in concert. Uh, if you guys have not been on the Pearl Jam website, the website's pretty trick. I mean, it tells you every time that they've played particular songs. According to the Pearl Jam website, they've played this 833 times live. So kudos to them because, uh, you know, when I did see them a couple times uh, in Tampa and Miami a few years ago, um, they played this song both places and uh, they brought it like 
that you you know you couldn't tell that it was like yeah maybe we'll phone this in because we've played it over 800 times but they they just they they bring they bring it every night and that's that's the one thing that i really i really dig about about this band all right let's uh let's go to the third song so this is alive I mentioned that this was the first single off the record. This was released in August of 91. B-side is Wash, which not nothing special for the B-side. Um, and to the point of uh, how many times they've played certain songs live, this is 763 times played uh, played live. So um, now, Bronson, you, you mentioned a little bit that this was part of this trilogy that he... Uh, that he talked about, he wrote about. Yeah, that was the very first one, you know, that he just telling the story of, you know, his mother, yeah, his mother, you know, telling him that his father's not really his father at age thirteen, and um, that's the amazing thing too about not only this record but a lot of the records is that I'll even play slow some of these songs down on the acoustic guitar and just play them for people and tell tell them to listen to the words, and most of the time they know the words by heart, but they don't connect the story to it you know they're, they're they're singing better man or they're singing alive and they don't <laughs> they're not hearing what he's saying in the song and then when you explain it they go wow man i have a much greater respect for you know the music now that listen to that but alive for me this was a hard one because um i feel like this was the inception i i feel like that was the beginning of eddie of who he is as a human um from that point on in his life he, i think he viewed the world differently which then in turn also made it as the first song that he had ever recorded for them. So in a lot, in a lot of ways, I wanted to put it a little further down on the list. Um, but I felt like it had to be near the top just be, just because of those two reasons. Yeah. Wayne, what you got on this? This is, <laughs> this is one that I did get tired of hearing. Cause when it, when they finally did catch, uh, you couldn't, there wasn't a radio station you could turn to the hard rock was playing it. Alternative rock was playing it pop. Every it was on every radio station, and it and this is the one that I did start to get tired of. I I I always knew I'd heard the second verse, but I once again I never really kind of put like you're like you're saying, Bronson. I never put it into perspective. I knew all the words to the second verse, but I never realized it was a fictionalized, creepy incest verse. And it it totally I don't know. It I wouldn't say it changed anything. It would change the song for me, but it it, it made me. You know, I, I listened to the three songs in a row to kind of get that whole mini opera, that mama son thing that he, Eddie Vedder talked about. But they milk it at the end, too. One, that's another thing that kills me is when it's it, a lot of their songs just go and they end. And this one, they start vamping at the end, milk it a little long. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that your uh, that your score is a little lower than Bronson and mine. So what uh, what score are you giving this? I gave it a five. I mean, this is a, there's probably a, I'd say seven songs on here are seven of maybe the best songs of definitely the best songs of theirs, maybe the best songs of anybody, especially from that that time. Um, it just like I say, it did lose a little bit for me because I heard it so many times. And and also he's he's so impassioned on all these other songs, even the ones that are the, there's a couple that are just kind of out of the ordinary. They don't sound like like the, the the nine of the other songs. And this one, his voice, and I'm sure it's on purpose. I don't I don't claim to be a a rock and roll uh, artist, but this one had it seems that he isn't is not as intense. I guess that's that's kind of the way Eddie Vedder's so intense on the rest of this record, and this is the one song that he kind of just it just kind of flows out of him a little differently. Is that because it's one of his first songs that he ever sang? And, and it's, you know, it's extremely personal. I mean, that first verse is like, that's, that's stuff you don't tell people kind of stuff that he just told the entire world. So yeah. I'm sure that's part of it. Bronson, what you got for a score? Uh, so I basically, because of the two reasons I said, I gave, I gave it a 10. And this is my nine. Fourth song is Why Go? Not to be confused with the song just called Go that's on their second record. So this is Why Go. Um, all right. who's uh, Who wants to start us off on Why Go? I, I uh, This is the one that really got me when I was scoring it because energy-wise, it's probably my favorite on the whole record. Um, you know, the it's one of the few songs that the guitars don't start it, that the drums start the whole thing. And... Um, I don't know. It just, it's, I like that. It's a little shorter. It's in, in a lot of ways, it's a little bit of a ditty and it, and it, um, the energy is off the charts, but you know, stacking up against some of these other songs, it was like, man, I couldn't, I couldn't find the room to get it up for, for an eight or a nine, yeah. you know, yeah. but I love, but I, I love, I love the song. And it was one that grew on me over a longer period of time. It, it, the first, probably, you know, the first few times I would have listened to the record, I, I would not have ranked it, um, you know, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as once or even flow. Yeah, my my problem with this song is it's sandwiched between alive and black. Right. And those are, in my opinion, two two of the best songs that Pearl Jam have ever ever performed. So that's that's kind of why um I may have given it a little bit lower score. Wayne, how about you? Oh, I gave this one a high score. I think it's it, this is definitely the best song for Dave uh, Cruz and yeah. the drummer, and uh, this is probably my favorite solo. And I was reading something somewhere that uh, Mike McCready was going through a little Stevie Ray Vaughan thing, and that was kind of his 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 version of that. Uh, and like I say, I like that it's kind of the reverse of once, where in once the the the, the verse is kind of that slower pace, and then the the chorus hits. This one's almost like the opposite of that. The, 
And uh, it's a good story too. I mean, he's telling a story in there. It's not as, it's not, it's pretty easy to tell what it is, but it's still a good story. Now that you bring up the Stevie Ray thing, I can totally hear that. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's, uh, let's get some scores. I'm giving this a five. I gave, I gave it a four. I want I wanted to give it a lot higher than that, but man, we only had one number for it. I know me too. Me too. Wayne, what you got? I gave it a nine. This has always been one of my, my favorite songs. All right. Good enough. All right. Moving on. Fifth song. This is black. So the band refused to release this as a single, even though they uh, they had that uh, stance. It did reach number three on the mainstream rock tracks chart. Um, and Bronson, this was on your record as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And this is the only song that, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I performed it with Eddie, just me and him on the stage at a solo gig. And I performed it with the full band in Fenway in front of 40,000. So uh you know, this one, this one was my favorite. This was my favorite song as, as soon as I heard it when I was 15 years old. And uh, to be able to perform it twice w- with Eddie and once with the band has been, it's never, it's never gotten old. It always, it, it always feels like going to church. And that's for a guy who never goes to church, <laughs> but it just, it starts slow and no matter where you are, you know, I, I think I heard him say one time on an interview, he said, I, I, da- I dare you to sing black and not feel it. You know, it was like, when that thing starts going, um, it just it just feels good. Yeah. The demo of this was called E-Ballad, was just an instrumental when Eddie heard the demos for Alive, Once and Footsteps. I think this pretty much won him the gig, right? Because he wrote the lyrics on his way up to Seattle to this to this uh, demo. Is that, is that accurate? Wow. I didn't know. I, I didn't know the story about that. I, I actually, I've asked, I actually, I've asked Stone, Jeff and Eddie, what was on that tape, what demos were on that tape other than the three that he sang over the top. And they're always kind of fuzzy about it. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't really remember man. The, the tapes. Lit. We got one laying around somewhere, but they, they're not really sure. Unless, unless it's complete lore. And what I read was, uh, was, you know, just a, uh, a fan wishing that that's the case, but that's that I read that from a couple different sources. So, um, and 
this song played 567 times live, definitely less than a live or even flow. Cause I think that there were many years where they did not play this song live. And I was so happy to hear this song, uh, when they, when they played in Miami, uh, that was definitely one of the highlights. They, they did wait until pretty, pretty close to the end to play this, uh, play the song. So I was, I was on, uh, I was on pins and needles waiting for them to play this. Cause I really wanted to hear this. And the other highlight, uh, Bronson, I don't know you, you've seen them 15 times. Have you ever, have you ever heard them play tremor Christ? Um, you know what? I've listened to so many live shows just like on XM. I, yeah. I, I don't know if I heard him play. Actually, I think I, I maybe one, maybe just one show. He, he doesn't play it that often. They've only played it 69 times according to the website. And the reason why they played it that night in Miami. So there were two dudes in the front row. One of them had written on his forehead tremor. The other one had written on it Christ. And Eddie goes, uh, I suppose that's what you guys want to hear, right? Uh, and he's like, I think, it, and he's pointing at the guy who has Christ written, written, uh, written on his forehead. He's like, um, I think it would be really weird if you walk out of here by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, it's really nice sometimes. I think I, I heard, um, I got to hear fatal in Montana uh-huh. and I, I don't know if I'm remembering this right, but I think they had only played it six times up to that point. And I videoed a bit of it from the side stage, um, that was la- that was last year after those Seattle shows. They when they cut into that one, I was I was so happy. It was probably one. It, w- it was one of the few that I had stuck in the back of my mind, thinking, "When am I going to get a chance to hear this one?" And finally, they played it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, so we haven't really talked about the lyrics. I mean, the lyrics are pretty, pretty, pretty dark as well, right? Well, anybody who's ever loved somebody and had them stop loving them, this song is is heart wrenching. I mean, these lyrics are beautiful. And, uh, and I love, I mean, he has this nice understated delivery all the way through it until that last little part, uh, where, you know, the whole, I know you'll be a star in somebody else's sky. This song is one of, uh, I wish it could have been higher too on my list. Cause it's just so, uh, it's beautiful. And like I say, it's musically sparse and, it's a lot different than than most of the rest of the songs on this album, but in a just a tremendously wonderful yeah. way. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna totally give away my score here by by saying this. So last night I'm driving in the car with the wife and two of my kids, and I'm prepping for this this. So I'm listening to ten, and I look over at my wife. This was while we were listening to a live or whatever, and I was like, "So what do you think my top score is going to be?" And she she just looks at me like it's going to be black. I was like, okay. Yeah. So she, 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 <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so she, well, she knows me, she knows me all too well. You know, she, she knows that I go right. to these dark places and black is definitely one of those songs that, you know, right. So, well, I think I, I've, I've probably performed for a crowd. Every song on this record, except for probably, uh, maybe not deep. And, um, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what country you're in. If you play black, people tend to sing along and just dig it. It, you know, you could play even flow or alive and they're kind of, yeah, that's pretty good. But if you, if you play black for some reason, there's always enough people in the room that are touched by it. Absolutely. Such a great song. All right. So I'm, I'm taking it. This is your 11 as well. 
Yep, that's my 11 as well. All right, Wayne, what you got? Uh, okay. Eight. All right, let's move on to Jeremy. single released September of 92 went as high as number five on the alternative songs chart uh, also hit number five on the mainstream rock chart what's weird about that it only hit 79 on the billboard hot 100 which boggles my mind since I heard this song everywhere and MTV played the the video uh, of this probably every 20 minutes like I I think I saw this more times than um, a- any video ever. And I think this, this of all, I mean, and they don't make a lot of videos, particularly after this, but this song is so linked to the video. Um, it's just forever linked to the video. I did a little research on the video as well. So w- let me ask you what your guys' interpretation of the 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 ending part of the video where the kids are covered in blood. So MTV would not allow the video to show Jeremy putting a gun in his mouth and pulling the trigger at the climax of the video. So apparently it is Jeremy committing suicide, not the kids who are dead. Um, So I always interpret it as Jeremy went in the classroom, shot everybody dead, no, according to the, the video director, he says, um, and here's the quote, he says, probably the greatest frustration I've ever had is that the ending is sometimes mis- misinterpreted is that he shot his classmates, the idea that's his blood on them, and they're frozen at the moment of looking at it. Right. Yeah, because they were a little pale. They, they were a little pale looking, so you could infer that. Yeah. And if you watch the video, I heard no one else in the in in the video part, not the band part, but no one else in the video moves but Jeremy. Oh, okay. I did not, I did not pick that up. Yeah, they were all frozen. But I I didn't infer. I actually probably have never watched the video from front to back, but I just knew that it was a real story somehow. Reading something somewhere, and um, I knew that it was about a newspaper article that that, that Eddie was reading while Jeff was playing that bass line. And um, since I've, I've heard a couple of shows where he's in the middle of the song near the end, he said like, you know, sing it for the kid, like to the crowd in the middle of the song. Um, if it, if it had a lot of energy in it that night. And that to me, to me, it's uh, going along in the verses. I really, really enjoy playing the song because it's in, in a way it's kind of like, why go? It just, it, it's constantly going. It, it just, the verses feel good, kind of almost like a little rappy in a way, but um, and also the chorus is not crazy high to sing. So it actually, the, the verse kind of beats you up a little bit and the, the chorus gives you a little bit of a break as far as singing it, which is fun sometimes because most of the songs are the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So the B sides on this is footsteps, 
And of course, Yellow Ledbetter is on the B side of Jeremy. So let's talk about Yellow Ledbetter because this is one of the one of Pearl Jam's, I think, most recognized songs. And whenever they play it live, you know, the crowd definitely is all about it. So did they make the right choice in not putting Yellow Ledbetter on this record? I, I think so. I, I think it had a great, I mean, I think there's some mystique to a B-side. Plus, around here, that thing was on the radio as if it was the, the, the A-side yeah. to the single. That was on every radio station too. Um, but I, I, I like that, that, that whole kind of, you know, a B-side, it wasn't on the record. It kind of gives it a whole different, uh, like a little, adds a little mystery. Do you guys have, uh, did you guys hear anything or, or read anything about, I don't know much about Yellow Lead Better other than it seems like it was done on the fly and purposely kind of left that way. But have you heard any stories about how that came about? I haven't. Other than, other than no. there is, there is a million different interpretations on what Eddie's actually singing. Right, right. I, I, I don't know. The, I, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't heard it from the horse's mouth. I didn't ask him about that song, but um, he, I know he was with some other ball players, and he had a friend of his um, who was dying and he was a military guy and they were in a hotel room. Some of the guys at the time were with the twins and they came up in the room and my buddy Jared Burton was in the room that night and he, he played, started playing yellow love better on the acoustic guitar and Eddie sang it and he was changing the words in it, talking about the guy that he was at the funeral with. And I, I think they had a conversation about the song being about somebody coming back from war and that's why in the in the last in the thing he's saying I'm not I'm not sure if it was in a box or a bag. Uh, um, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got some homework, Bronson. You got to go talk to Eddie and ask him what the. What the <laughs> I know it's funny when you it's funny when you're with him, man. He's not he's not uh, he's he's very he's very warm to be around, but but not necessarily real open. You know what I mean? It's like uh, I asked the tour manager, like, hey, you know, how long did it take you to think that you knew him? And he said, I still don't know him. You know, he only lets people in so far. And so I've been around him a good bit and had, I mean, six, seven hours in a hotel room, just drinking Coronas and having conversation. But, you know, I, I pick and choose my spots when I'm going to ask him what a song's actually about, because I want to ask him what all of them are about, but I don't want to disrespect the guy, you know? Right, right. right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I heard this. I mean, I had heard the same thing about him being very uh, warm. Uh, just like I say, a guy I know, went to something where uh, Eddie came with, his, it was a, a daddy daughter thing. And he, so this guy's, and of course, you know, everybody in the crowd, everybody in the room knows it's Eddie Vedder and everybody's tries to be real cool at first. And, uh, but he would, they, the guy said he was, you know, real, just super personal with everybody, you know, didn't uh, shook everybody's hand would, you know, talk to everybody, but it took everybody a little, everybody did give him a little space in the beginning. Cause it was about, about his daughter. Um, but at, just a really warm person. Yeah, that's what uh, Adam shared on our Christmas episode. He, you know, he DJs in the Seattle Tacoma area and he talked about uh, meeting Eddie and getting a, getting a guitar pick from, from Eddie for, for doing a good job at DJing. And, and I was, yeah. So (laughs) yeah, I'm actually sitting, I'm actually sitting right here. I was, I'm scoring this or I scored it with a pen that he he gave me back. And after I played, (laughs) with him it was it was strange but you know he just he wrote such a beautiful letter even just talking about this pen and where it came from and that it's still it's it he said i'm giving you this fairly ordinary um 
fair, fair, what is it? it said? I've got this one in the Hotel Santa Monica many years ago, this fairly ordinary writing utensil. But he said, I, I've written a lot of good songs with it, and I know it's got some good juju left in it. I'm passing it on to you, my friend. And, um, but just, just the, the present tense of the conversation and the, and the note writing and just to, just to hand you something that special, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, it, it says a lot about who he is. That almost reminds me of our, uh, sing anything episode wayne lloyd lloyd dobler <laughs> i gave her my heart he gave me a pen <laughs> oh that's awesome all right let's get some scores wayne are we still on oh jeremy seven we, yeah we've been talking so long i forgot where we're we still were. on jeremy yeah sorry yep we can we kind of we kind of went down a rabbit yeah. hole for jeremy all right bronze, bronze <laughs> i gave it a I, I gave it a six okay and i gave it an eight Moving on to the seventh song, this is Oceans. And I was really surprised by this. So this was actually the fourth and last single off the record, but it was not released commercially in the U.S. So they released it as a single um, elsewhere. And um, yeah, I thought it was interesting because this is, spoiler alert, um, this is one of my least favorite songs on the record. And so I'm really surprised by the record label wanting to release this as a single. I thought, I just thought it was a weird choice. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it happened. It's, it's also my, you know, um, one of my least favorites on the record as, as well. Although it's, you know, in terms of just in comparison to a lot of other music, I still enjoy it. But when you, when it stacks up against all those other giants, it's, it's hard to compare. But what I, what I don't love about it is it's hard even knowing the words to kind of distinguish exactly you know what he's talking about, even though he's he's let it slip out a little bit. But it just it's not a kind of a cohesive story from front to back like a lot of the other songs are. Yeah, and the production of of the, him singing it is a little little uh, you know obscure as well because it's like you're you're trying really hard to listen to the words, but it's kind of kind of garbled a little bit from the production side as well. Yeah, he well, he tells a story of of um. It's the only song on the record that he's following the bass line. Oh. So if you listen, it's just that he, that hold on to the thread. He's following the bass line exactly because he said he got locked out of the room that they were jamming in, in those first couple of weeks. <laughs> um, he was up and it was like raining or something. He went up He went up to grab a sandwich or something. He got locked out and his, all he could hear was the bass line from Jeff. And so he was writing the lyrics up there. Wow. Yeah. I, I heard, I did read that same story. They sent him out to get sandwiches and they locked him out obviously on accident, but it started raining and he would start, he would, he would be going along with the song. And then when they would get to a, when it would quiet down, he would start banging on the door trying to get him to hear. <laughs> but I, I, I agree. To, the word that I got written down here is not cohesive. It just doesn't, it, it's, it's not, I mean, unlike black, which is kind of sparse in, it, this one just doesn't, I don't know. It just felt bland. And I, this is my, one of my lesser favorites songs too. It just doesn't feel 
something something about it just doesn't feel right yeah okay um all right so i'm giving us a one wayne i gave it a two yeah bronson and i gave it a one as well yeah i think we're all in agreement this is one of our least favorite songs still good it's just um yeah just not uh not compared to all of the really other great songs on this record so all right here is the eighth song this is porch This has been played a lot in uh, live as well, 572 times, according to the Pearl Jam website. Um, Wayne, since I know what your score is in advance, t- tell me tell me why you love Porch. Um, it's completely personal. Like uh, the first, I mean, <laughs> I, to, I don't want to share too much, but I mean, if you've ever come home and everybody's been gone, uh, that's a... It's just you, you literally don't, it's like the world starts spinning around. You don't understand, even though it's clearly, it's logical. Most logical thing is that she took the kids and left. You don't feel that you just, the world is spinning. And that he seems to capture that, that, that same feeling that I had at that moment. Um, I've just always connected with the song. Um, he also, I, I want to say I, I watched the unplugged and he, he does. He has this weird look on his face because I think it's right before he uses, before he drops the f bomb, and I just every time I've 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 seen it performed, or I've heard it performed. I'd like to say this is just, it's it's one hundred percent personal. Like it's a great song in and of its in and of itself, but I connect to it on a probably a completely different level than most people do. Yeah, and this was one that pained me to give the score that I did because it. It was at one point, it was as high as eight for me and uh, ended up uh, bumping it down. And the reason the reason why is I think I was looking at I love the last part of this song. So uh, I literally grit so my much teeth. And I mean, I just yeah, uh, that's that is like I mean, my muscles physically tense. I mean, I I I don't I say it under my breath with like these clenched teeth. It's just a very that last part is extremely powerful uh, to me personally. Bronson, is this one one song that uh, you sing live? Yeah, yeah. This one I've always played this one a lot because for one, it's it's a um, you know there, there's a handful of songs that uh, I know other artists have done this. Plenty of artists have done it, but I've never seen it done so many times. Eddie basically por- por- porch, you know, in the chorus, he's taking a G shape and moving it down the neck to get the A into the B flat or whatever it is, he's moving it and, and he never move, moves his fingers and he does it in better man. And he does it in, I am mine. And he does it in, um, not for you in the E shape. Right. And it's, so I had that conversation with them and I just said, you know, why did you write that that way? Why wouldn't you have just played an A? Why did you move the, the G shape all the way down in this kind of funny chord? 
He just said, I, I don't, he said, I don't really know chords. And he was explaining that he just wanted the energy to go up. And so he was just moving down the neck. But I, I was, I was always fascinated by how that song was written in, in, in those shapes. And then also, you know, j just the energy that, that is in the song. And you were talking about the MTV unplugged version, Wayne. And um, I, I, I'd love that version as well. Not on the quiet parts when he's saying, you know, there is something on my mind and he just blends this thing, you know, um, before he writes, you know, uh, pro choice on his arm and all that, all that kind of coming together. Um, and then it being the, you know, the, the end of the show and him, you know, them vamping on that song for such a long time and him climbing all these crazy towers and, you know, jumping 30 feet into the crowd. Sometimes it just became the closer for such a long time that I just, I value, I valued the, the song a lot. So I, f I feel bad for my score. So I'm giving this a three Wayne, what you got? <laughs> this is an 11. This is my, my favorite. Song. That's an 11. Yeah. Yep. I've got a, I've got a seven on that. That one actually snuck that, that one snuck in front of Jeremy, which is hard to do, but you know, it, it feels, it feels like a diamond in the rough. Um, porch does you know it's it wasn't obviously a radio hit but it, it feels like it is to a lot of fans i think yeah, absolutely uh i think that this was one of the more well-received ones when i saw them in tampa so all right moving on this is garden i won't be help me with the lyrics because i this is one that i don't i didn't quite understand uh with i will walk with my face blood i will walk with my shadow flag i don't know what any of that means yeah i think i the only the reference only references i have to the song at all is he, he he said he said he wrote it in a park um in in seattle there i can only infer that he's talking about tombstones oh, okay. um, when he's talking about this garden garden of stone i i, I think he's near i think he's near a, uh, a cemetery you know and he's just um somehow somehow yeah it's, it's one of those kind of like oceans where you're not sure of the story it feels like you know kind of where it's coming from but but you wouldn't be able to infer all the, the little detail okay. yeah it seemed like different verses were about different things it didn't uh and this this one, because I know they've complained about the mixing on this, like there's too much reverb in it. And I, most of the songs, I didn't feel it, but I definitely did on this one. It is, it is one of those songs, though. They, they haven't played, at least in the later years, played very often. So I, I have seen the crowd get really amped up when, when they cut into that. Although, you know, it doesn't, like I said, seemingly doesn't have a story to be followed. But the energy in it... Um, Something about that A minor just kind of droning through those verses. People seem to dig it. All right. Let's get some scores on this. I gave it a four. I gave it a two. I gave it a four also. Second to last song. This is Deep.
this is going to be another one where I'm just pained by the score that I give it because I really, I do really like this song as well. Um, it's one of the the rocking songs, and I do like, I do like some of the the, the lyrics on this as well. Um, though there's not a whole lot of lyrics to this. Definitely feels like a Seattle song, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Talks about uh, sinking, sinking yep. the needle deep. Sinking the needle deep, yeah. I, that's what I what I love about the song is that in those verses, he he um, you know, he always uses a little bit of wordplay, um, like a nothing man. You know, in the beginning, he he does that a lot with you know, once divided, nothing left to subtract. Um, in that song, there, I didn't realize it for a long time. I never. There was a lot of years I listened to that song in the early days and didn't know that last verse that he was yeah. saying there was a guy on top of a girl and that he sinks himself in deep. You know, I didn't hear that. And then when I started backtracking the story to sticking the needle in his arm and the, and the other verse, um, then I realized that that was a complete story and, and the song became a lot more attractive yeah, to me. This, this goes back to, Wayne, what you were saying about uh, once, you, once you dig into the lyrics and you're like, ooh, that's dark. Yeah. Especially that last... Especially that last verse, like you said, Bronson. Yeah, and that was the first time that I had read the lyrics to it because I mean, this was right. definitely the one of the song that was, I, I, I would listen to it and then I was like, I, a three? I don't know. I just like I because I, I like the the little uh, that's more of that Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, Mike McCready on the on the in the intro. Uh, yeah, and like I say, this I I I didn't catch it. I didn't really realize it uh, like. Like Bronson was saying, as one person, I guess I just thought this was more of, you know, like in Garden where he's got it's got a lot of. I mean, I saw the three things that were going on, but I didn't I didn't put them together as one person. All right, let's get some scores. Unless you guys have any more analysis on this one. No, this one, this one, this one pained me to give it a three because I wanted to give it higher. But yeah, I know the feeling. I gave it a two. How about you, Wayne? Yeah, I gave it a three, and it was I. I, I'm there. You cannot see all the numbers that I crossed out couple of couple of threes a couple of fours i think there's a five there's crossed out yeah this one's a tough one you know i think i think i think one time this is probably five six seven years ago theo epstein when he first got to the cubs I, one day i think he put up on the big scoreboard in letters his top i think it was top 20 pearl jam songs and he put them on the big on that a green you know board they have in center field with those metal discs the old school style and and i i never saw a picture of it um but now that I'm doing this for the first time, trying to rank just these amount of songs, I don't. You'd have such a hard time just ranking the band songs. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this up with release.
ones that I struggled with. Uh, this was as high as a nine for me at one point. I'll tell you the reason why is I just, I love Vetter's performance in this. But what dropped it down was the rest of the song doesn't, it is pretty drony, but it's really, it's really Eddie. Um, and that's why I, I, I love this song is because there is a lot of emotion in this. And I think that this is, this is the one song that I felt as though this is going to be, this is going to be a band that's going to be around forever. Once Eddie really figures out how to, how to sing. And I, and I, and I know that that sounds really weird because he knows how to sing. Um, but some of the, some of these songs, um, you know, go back to, you know, some of the, some of the songs that we couldn't really decipher all the lyrics. Once you get into like Vitology, for instance, um, I think that he's, he realizes how to enunciate more of his words without losing any of the emotion and the passion behind it. Yeah, I, I'll, I agree. And I, I had that conversation with him one time in Cincinnati and cause I was, we were talking about singing real uh, kind of throaty or, or singing a little bit more whispery. So like, I know he doesn't sing at all like John Mayer, but you know, John Mayer is very breathy. Right. And in the early days, Eddie was singing, everything was just full on kind of from his throat. And I said to him, you know, to, to, to do some of these three hour shows you're doing, I, I, can, I can feel you pull it back a little bit. And he said, yeah, I've, you know, worked with a vocal coach a little bit a few times to just understand because he said in the early days, because we only had to do 12 or 15 songs. He said, I could just I could scream all of it. But now we're having to do 30 in a night. I just couldn't survive, especially getting older. So he's learned to sing a little bit better along along the way, even on some of these old songs. If you listen to them now, I can always tell if uh, like a version of release, I could tell for, by listening to XM radio. I don't even have to know what year it is. I can tell you if it's if it was in the early 90s versus something yeah. that was in the 2000s, just yeah. by the way that he's singing it. Wayne, what you got on this one? Uh, you know what? It, that, that plotting start didn't help. The This one, the lyrics, um, and it, it's, like you said, this is deeply personal to him just from knowing a little bit what I have uh, read about his his story and then, list, and then reading the lyrics. This is extremely personal to him, which it gets some credit for that. But then that whole hidden track thing. Uh, so the slow start and then the, what I, I the, the unnecessary hidden track uh, killed it for me. Yeah. I th- you know, I think this, this song um, on the record, this was one of the two songs that I think Eddie brought to the band that he actually wrote the guitar parts. I think this one in porch he brought and um, like you said, being so personal, there's a little bit of an attraction there on the record, but it, it does get a lot better live. Live when you see the response of the crowd when they open up the show with that. Because if they open up with Oceans, it's like, it's pretty good. If they open up with some other stuff, whatever. But when they when they open up a release, there is a buzz in the crowd that is like no other that you don't really get Absolutely, off the record. Yeah. And it's got, and this has some of my favorite lyrics, even though it's really, uh, it's really minimal, but... It's I am myself like you somehow. Uh, that just right. kills me. I mean, it's it it seems so succinct, but there's a lot of power in that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and to find out to find out that you, you know, Sean Casey from the Reds was the one telling me this story that there was some guys at a Cubs fantasy camp and they were with Sean Casey and Eddie in a hot tub. And one of the guys said, Ed, I I think he said I played in a band with your dad or or yeah, I think that was the story that he played in a band with his dad. This was an old guy and he dug up a tape and gave it to Eddie and Eddie could hear his dad singing on the tape and he his vocal even sounded like him and then when he looks at him in pictures of him they almost look identical so you know that lyric was so this is before that but that lyric like you said I am myself like you somehow is just yeah remarkable it's great um all right let's get some scores so Bronson what you got I uh, gave that a five okay and Wayne I've never had the pleasure to hear it live, so I could only give it a one. Okay, and I'm I'm giving this a six. And like I said, it 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 was as high as was as high as nine at one point. So, um, I, I and I wonder if you know Bronson to your point of you know Eddie was the one who created the the guitar track for it. That's kind of what dropped it down for me. It's just that that droney. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of variance in that particular song. I wonder right. if, I wonder if, you know, if, uh, Mike or, or Jeff had, had added something to that, if it, if it would have, uh, changed anything on that. So, right. So, all right. So give me a second to tally up some scores and we'll, we'll get our top five here. I think, I think we, I think we know what they are, right? Yeah. It seems like it's going to be. The big hits, it seems like you got Black Alive even flowing once, those four, and then something else is going to sneak in there. Yeah, so we've got we've got Black at one at an average score of 10. Uh, we've got Once at 9.66. We've got Alive at uh, average score of eight. That's our third. And then we've got a three-way tie for our fourth song. So we've got Porch, Even Flow, and Jeremy all at sevens. So yeah, this was, uh, this was, this was tough to rank. That's pretty cool. That means you got a, I think it means you got a good record when, when you're number three or your number, your number five is a three-way tie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, we did talk about state of love and trust real briefly. Would that have fit on this record? I think that would have fit on this record. The, you know, footsteps, probably wouldn't have gone over real well in in the in the early days you know it was probably better that it was a b-side or that it would have come out on a later record it would have worked but this one had too much high energy it was too slick state of love and trust i think would have worked in here perfectly if they would have kicked out oceans probably and threw in state of love and trust but um for whatever reason they held that back where would that have stacked up in our scoring if that would have been on the record yeah state of love and trust i mean that's (laughs) We've like we discussed when we went over the single soundtrack that would have been high up. I, I think it would have been so. I, I have a seven on porch. So I think it would have been right right around there or just a little higher. Yeah, and on the single soundtrack, if you remember Wayne, that was our third favorite song on the record, and uh, that was second only to Chloe Dancer Crown of Thorns by Mother Love Bone and Alice in Chains Wood. So that's right. Yeah. So that would have, that would have ranked pretty high up there as well. Definitely. So um, where does this stack up among the Pearl Jam records? Is this, is this their best record? 
I th- I think it is by far. Um, it, like I said, the only the only thing that you read about is that you know they did they did things a little bit more organically after that, and the sounds of the other records aren't they're not quite as compressed and slick, and they I think they enjoy that because it sounds more like their live show. But for me, I mean, these you know, you've got a you've got a handful of, in my mind of the greatest rock songs ever written, and they came they they all came within like ten days. You know, he lands in Seattle and says, I don't want to mess around. We're not going drinking. We're not going eating. We're going right to play music. That's the only request I have. Eddie says that. And they go and they, and you you have one of the greatest rock albums written of all time in almost 10. I mean, I think, I think they played a show on like day number seven at the off ramp. Yeah, that sounds that sounds accurate. Yeah. And like I say, there's other Pearl Jam. I think they grew into uh, it as they went along because I, I – I don't know that besides Porch that any of these are my favorite Pearl Jam songs, but none of their albums, I think, are so good top to bottom. I mean, they, right. there there's some I, I Better Man and Daughter and uh, even some of the, uh, this, the you know, Backspacer or what uh, had some stuff on there, uh, Life Wasted. But this just, I don't know that any of them stack up beginning to end as well as this one for me. Yeah. Uh, Vitalogy holds a special place in my heart. So I don't, I don't know. I, I still think 10 uh, is definitely the, the, the better record, but that, that record's solid. And I mean, their, their last two records, Backspacer and Lightning Bolt, I feel like those, those are both really solid records as well. Different. Yeah. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed those as well. You know, it's, it's always funny to, to wonder what would have happened, you know, if you, you take this record here and you say, you know, we, we hear even flowing alive are so good. We're going to go ahead and just, we're going to pull black and Jeremy off this and we're going to save it for album number three, right. you know, <laughs> which, which just never happens. I mean, I think the only man I've ever heard admit to that was train. He said that he knew he had a couple hits in his back pocket and he saved him for another record, but doesn't seem like you, you, you could, you could uh, do that, you know, not knowing which songs would be hits. But when you, when you listen to this one back, you think, wow, that they're just, how could they have not known that this thing was just going to be a smash hit? Absolutely. All right. Did, did, did we get it? Did we, uh, did we, we, did we talk about it? (laughs) I hope we, I hope we did it justice. If, if, if Ed listens to this interview, I hope he doesn't say, man, there's, all three of them guys don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, well, hopefully if he's listening to this, I mean, he realizes that um, this, this was one of those records that um, definitely we love. Uh, we cherish. I mean, th- this was, this was the soundtrack of my life in 91 and 92. So um, that definitely holds a very, very special place in my heart. So. All right. Uh, so let's see. Couple last questions. So Bronson, tell tell people where they can find your tour dates, where they can buy your record. Um, well, I don't think they can buy my record anywhere except maybe on eBay these days. That cover album, but uh, hopefully I'll have another original record out. Hopefully in the next twelve months. But um, the Bronson Royal um, Facebook page, Bronson Royal Band Facebook page is is being updated now. I never paid attention to it when I was playing baseball because we didn't play much, but now we're playing a few more shows and we're trying to keep it updated and put some nice pictures on there and stuff, and a little bit of video footage. So that's the place to, cool. to keep up with us. And then last question. So I ask all, all the guests, so who do you know that I don't know who would want to join us on a podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? Who do I know that you don't know that might want to do a podcast? Uh, I'm trying to think 
you know, obviously baseball I've, I, off the top of the head, for some reason, Jim Brewer came to my head because he's been opening up yeah. the comedian. Jim Brewer has been opening up for the whole Metallica tour and he's a treat, but I don't know if he'd want to sit and do it. You know, I, I, I know him pretty good, but not well enough to be like, yeah, he'd definitely jump on. But uh, I got to think of, I got to think of a baseball player that I, that I'm tight with that would love to do a record. Um, that, that's just really into music. I've got to, uh, I need to look through my phone, but Jim Brewer, the first guy that came to my head. Well, I, and I know that he's a, he's, a, he's a big baseball, baseball fan as well. Uh, I saw him at Mets fantasy camp a few years ago. That's yeah. right. He's a big Mets fan. Him and him and, uh, it's Adam Sandler, yeah. right? Mets yep, fans. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, it has been a absolute pleasure revisiting this with you. So thank you very much for coming. Yeah. yeah well, thanks for having me on guys. That was fun. Yeah. So, all right, here's uh here's the ending spiel. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts, go to a live show, buy a t-shirt of the band, buy a record, visit a record store and not just on record store day. We're records revisited and we are out. out.